Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic priest in the Jesuit order and is president of the Maji Center of Reason and Faith, the Spitzer Center, and the Napa Institute. Father Robert Spitzer earned his Master of Arts in Philosophy from St. Louis University, his Master of Divinity from Gregorian University, his Master of Theology from Weston School, and his PhD from the Catholic University of America. Author of 10 books, producer of nine television series for EWTN, and founder of six major national institutions, Father Spitzer has made multiple major media appearances, including on Larry King Live, The Today Show, The History Channel, and PBS, and I might throw in there the Institute of Catholic Culture. His academic specialties are the philosophy of science, particularly space-time theory and transcendent implications of contemporary Big Bang cosmology, metaphysics, uh, particularly the theory of time and the philosophy of God, and organizational ethics and its relationship to personal and cultural transformation. It is a great honor to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Robert Spitzer. Thank you for being here with us, Father, on this beautiful Palm Sunday evening. Wonderful to be with all of you this evening. And we should begin with that prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we enter into Holy Week, we ask that we might understand through this talk and through the many um, the studies that we do, the prayers and the liturgies that we attend uh, during this holy season, we ask that we get a deeper understanding of your sons and your love for us, a deeper understanding of the price that was paid for our redemption, a deeper understanding of how we have been rescued from the powers of darkness and placed beyond ourselves into the power of your light, your love, and your joy. We ask for all of these insights, all of this depth, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. It's all yours. Okay. Thank you so much, Peter. And uh, let me just get right to uh, the shroud itself, the description. Uh, you can see this remarkable face. Um, that's there. You can see the detail in it, the scars uh, that are there, the, some of the blood stains uh, that are there. And uh, just uh, if you uh, look a little further down, you can see this next uh, slide, which is a slide of the um, of the uh, shroud itself, the full uh, frontal uh, part of the shroud itself. 
There's a backside of the shroud as well. Again, you can see that this is a positive image. Um, uh, you know, you look at that, but actually that is the negative image, and we'll talk about that in one moment. And then uh, if you uh, take a look at this next one, here's the real um, uh, positive image, which is actually a negative image on the shroud. That's the um, this uh, straw yellow picture there. Then it, it doesn't look very refined, but if you look at the previous slide, you can see that it really, that straw yellow uh, image is really a negative image. And when you look at the photographic negative, that's this black image that was in the previous slide. The shroud is 14 feet long, and that's because it was um, a shroud that covered both the backside, the dorsal part of the body uh, that um, it uh, wrapped around. It came over the top of the head and then came down and also uh, you can see the frontal part there of the body, and uh, you can see um, that it uh, links up at the feet, and so you've got a perfect, uh, well, I'll explain it, a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. It's the most remarkable image in the world. There is nothing like it, nothing even remotely co comparable and I'll explain it uh, to you. And by the time we finish in an hour and 15 minutes, you will see why that is the case. The second thing is that the, um, the shroud itself has 372 blood stains. We'll describe uh, why every one of those blood stains is a very real blood stain. Certainly can't be paint or rubs or dyes or some other uh, liquid that was added to the cloth. It's definitely blood with an AB uh, blood type that we will talk about in a moment. So you can see from um, you know the, the shroud, uh, let me just uh, talk about how precise this image is. Uh, you're not gonna be able to produce this image as we'll see through any photographic, um, I mean, through any non-photographic process. The precision is too great. But more than that, um, as we'll see, there is actually uh, imaging from the inside of the body, and it's in three-dimensional proportionality to the outside of the body. So you can see, for example, the backbone inside the body, and you can see the flesh that's surrounding the backbone on the outside of the body, and you can see it in perfect, you can tell exactly how far the backbone is from the flesh surrounding it. The same with the bones and the hands, etc. You can see, um, you know, in three-dimensional uh, proportionality, the flesh that's surrounding the bones. So this three-dimensional imaging that we can um, uh, definitely ascertain uh, through a, a variety of different kinds of uh, three-dimensional uh, image analyzers um, at NASA, you can actually uh, look at this. Um, but that's one of the mysteries of the shroud. It's not only a photo, perfect photographic negative image. It's not only a perfectly precise image. It's a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image with actual imaging on the inside of the body relative to the flesh that's surrounding, say, the, boat, the backbone or the bones in the hand, etc. cetera. Uh, additionally, it is the most scientifically tested artifact in human history. Um, uh, you know, literally, it's no exaggeration to say that hundreds of different scientific tests have been performed on this shroud, uh, not to mention uh, a variety of dating tests, 
So this is a, you know, the, the question is, is this really the burial cloth of Jesus Christ? As I will um, uh, answer uh, over the course of the next hour and 10 minutes or so, uh, it is, I think, unquestionably the, the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And I have a variety of reasons for suggesting this, for saying this, indeed asserting it. Uh, but of course, I'll just say I'm 99.9% sure because every scientific fact is doubtable. Uh, there's always a, you know, a point, uh, uh, zero, 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 one chance, you know, that, uh, that this thing is not. But I think after I finish the data presentation and the testing results, I think you, you may come to the same conclusion that I have. So let's take a look. Um, we'll talk about the uh, origins of the shroud, that, where it was over the course of its lifetime uh, throughout the course of the time. So let's get to the real uh, bone of contention, as it were, uh, namely the 1988 C14 data, carbon-14 dating test uh, that was done, which placed the shroud between basically 1250 to about 1350 A.D., so you look at that and you go, wow, if that was an authentic carbon C14 dating, um, the shroud could certainly not be the burial cloth of Jesus. This was, of course, reported in Nature magazine and uh, a very a well-known magazine. But as we shall see, um, this dating was very flawed indeed for a variety of different reasons. And we'll get to it in just a moment. I'll give you several uh, reasons for believing that. But uh, for the moment, um, that was the result that was that um, you know was uh, uh, obtained in the C14 dating test. After 1988, interest in the shroud dropped dramatically until 1998, when uh, Dr. Ray Rogers, the head of thermal chemistry, uh, uh, chemistry uh, one of the departments of thermal chemistry there at Los Alamos Laboratories, is one of the big national labs in the United States. Um, came up with a result uh, that showed that the sample taken on the shroud could not have been from the original linen shroud that I just described. And the reason that he knows this is, um, first of all, he was able to take uh, find out exactly where that sample uh, was taken from. And it was taken from a place that was uh, burned in the fire of Chambéry uh, in France, and the, the the burning actually took place in the 1500s. And the sisters um, in a convent nearby, who had ex, you know experienced uh, artisans in what's called invisible mending, uh, they actually took cotton fibers and they dyed those cotton fibers, those cotton threads. Um, to look with a gum dye mordant, by the way, that came from the Middle Ages. They dyed it and they sewed it, weaved it into the, um, the places uh, where a hole actually was burned in the shroud um, and during the fire of Chambéry. Notice that you can see from the first image that I showed you there, I mean, the second image that I showed there, that um, it doesn't, the, the burning, the holes, that you can see there on the, go down the side of the cloth, but none of them actually touches the actual image or blood stains of the body that was wrapped in the shroud. So the first thing to notice is that they took this sample, the people who did the C14 uh, dating, actually took this sample from that damaged area 
which could have been, um, you know, intermingled with threads that the sisters put into that cloth in the 15th century. Uh, this is precisely what Dr. Rogers found. Um, he did a complete um, uh, testing of that uh, sample, and he had several of these fibrils that were taken by sticky tape during the 1978 STIRP investigation and was able to very precisely um, you know, take the fibro from the exact spot where the carbon-14 dating sample was taken from. And this is uh, what he discovered. By the way, this is Kathleen Conway. She's my assistant, and she's just going to read um, some of these quotes. Um, and this one is from Dr. Uh, Ray Rogers uh, of Thermochemi. Uh, he is also the editor of the Thermochemica, well-known uh, scientist here in the U.S. The combined evidence from chemical kinetics, analytical chemistry, cotton content, and pyro, uh, pyrolysis, mass spectrometry, proves that the material from the radiocarbon area of the shroud is significantly different from that of the main cloth. The radiocarbon sample was thus not part of the original cloth and is invalid for determining the age of the shroud. So that was the first blow in 1998 that happened to the carbon-14 dating. A second blow happened not until just very recently, actually in uh, 2018. And um, the reason for the delay was because uh, Dr. Uh, Tristan Casabianca and his team um, uh, publishing now in Archaeometry, um, uh, which was a very fine uh, peer-reviewed journal, um, at uh, Oxford University, um, published uh, his findings, but he couldn't get the raw data um, from the British Museum. So that, you know, when you do a carbon C14 dating, there's uh, what's called uh, raw data and, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, sampling. So you get all of the readouts of all the raw data, all the various elements that's, that are there uh, to make the carbon dating. Now, here is the curious part um, it, by the way, he, it took him 30 years to get that raw data from the British Museum. They withheld it, withheld it. Finally, he made a, a Freedom of Information uh, request um, in um, uh, 2018. They finally granted it. He then took it to a series of statisticians. The statisticians did a statistical analysis of the uh, samples. And there it was discovered that there was considerable heterogeneity in those, uh, in the raw data of the C14 t uh, data, uh, testing, not just heterogeneity, uh, they took a, one strand, cut it into three parts. So then there's heterogeneity within each of those parts and among those three parts um, that went to the three different carbon dating labs. So what um, uh, Casabianca um, and his team discovered, as I said, published in Archaeometry, um, at Oxford, he came out and said, it's impossible to date this strand based on the heterogeneity to the Middle Ages, because it looks like different ages of the cloth are embedded, right? So there, there could be two different kinds of cloth from two different ages that are embedded into the sample. So um, right there, we have two very good reasons for expecting um, that the um, the carbon-14 dating uh, could not possibly have been true. Uh, as we'll see in a moment, and I'm just going to hold this off until I get to it, 
but there's also pollen grains embedded in the shroud, which show the precise route of the shroud. And it shows that it was in Jerusalem for a long period of time, then in Edessa, Turkey for a long period of time, and then in Constantinople for a long period of time. Now consider the following. If the shroud is only 700 years old, in other words, it came you know, sometime between uh, 1250 to 1350, and we know that there's a precise provenance going back to Geoffrey de Charnay in 1350 in France, then the shroud could have only been in Europe. That is to say, in France, in Liri, France, where uh, Geoffrey de Charnay revealed it, and then the trip over to Turin, Italy, where it remains to this day, could have only been in those two countries in Europe over its 700-year lifespan. That's impossible, as we shall see, because those pollen grains indicate that the shroud has to have been in Jerusalem and northern Judea, and we'll talk about why, for at least 300 years, in Edessa, Turkey, for at least 250 years, and in Constantinople for at least 250 years. Uh-uh. The shroud, if it, we have a confirmed age of, uh, a day dating of 1350, as when Geoffrey de Charnay uh, uh, puts it out there, then it's pretty clear that um, that there's something very, very strange going on here. That carbon dating couldn't possibly be right. It, it's kind of missing 800 years minimum of shroud history. So therein lies the, uh, I mean, 900 years um, uh, 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 minimum of shroud history. So therein lies our, you know, disqualification of the carbon dating. Um, so why else do we think that the carbon dating is wrong and rather that the age of the shroud goes back to around 50 AD? Because after the carbon dating, a series of other kinds of dating tests that were non-carbon-14 based were performed on the shroud based on fibrils that have been taken from the shroud in the 1978 stirrup investigation. Let's just go through uh, quickly what those are and you can get a pretty good idea. The first one that I'm going to talk about happened just in 2022, just last year. Uh, this was a Liberatori Caro and uh, seven colleagues over at the National Labs in Italy, um, uh, good physicists, uh, excellent physicists. Uh, they went ahead and devised and peer-reviewed a brand-new uh, dating uh, uh, process, and that those tests actually showed that the shroud um, uh, goes, uh, by the way, it's called uh, wide-angle X-ray scattering. It's just a basic new way, a peer-reviewed new way. And by the way, it's been peer-reviewed over several journals over several years. This is a highly accurate dating method of ancient fabrics. And this a particular dating method shows that the shroud originated sometime uh, between uh, 54 to 75 AD, uh, plus or minus about 100 years, with a very high 95% confidence level. So if you look at that, you can see right away, wow, that's a huge discrepancy, you know, uh, between at the earliest 1250 for the carbon dating and, of course, a wide-angle um, X-ray scattering shows uh, 54 AD. So, again, something is clearly wrong with this carbon dating. Um, it obviously had the threads, um, you know, fibers from where the sisters uh, sewed this thing, uh, um, you know, the patched up the, uh, the shroud and it's taken from that very controversial corner of the shroud. You can see it more and more. 
Let's take a look at three other tests that were done. A Fourier um, transformed infrared spectroscopy uh, test. Again, a, uh, a, an accurate, highly accurate way of dating ancient cloths uh, based on the decay of enzymes um, in, in the cloth and uh, various uh, molecular constructs in the cloth. Another one is called the Raman laser spectroscopy. Well, I have two uh, you know, uh, spectroscopic analyses. Uh, the reason is because um, during the fire chambre, some carbon would have embedded itself um, in the cloth, and that could have thrown off a carbon-14 dating. But the Raman laser, compared with the Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy, gets around any kind of uh, erroneous readings that might have come from uh, you know, carbon being absorbed by the cloth. So uh, essentially, um, Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy, we have a Raman laser spectroscopy, and finally, we have um, a mechanical um, compressibility and tension test. What do those three tests show? They show that the shroud came from around 90 AD, uh, again, plus or minus a significant number, about 200 years at a 96% confidence level. So you look at these things, and there's just no way this could have ever come from between uh, 1250 to 1350. This is impossible. I mean, you've got now four different peer-reviewed tests that are saying something, uh, you know, very, very different indeed. And uh, we'll talk about a little bit more about this and cosmogenic isotopes later. But what's the point? The point is the shroud probably, according to the new dating tests that have been done and peer-reviewed that have been done, probably comes from the first century around 50 AD is a pretty safe bet um, for um, the age of the shroud. Uh, we'll talk about where did it come from, uh, very likely Jerusalem. Let's get to some other um, areas uh, of it. I'm, I'm actually going to uh, go uh, zipping down for a moment. I'm going to zip over to the um, face cloth of Oviedo, and then I'm going to come, actually, yeah, I'm going to um, come back uh, to the pollen grains and to the um, coins on the man's eyes in just a moment. But the face cloth of Oviedo is very fascinating. And here is the uptake. We, this face cloth of Oviedo is a face cloth that was wrapped around a man's face. And of course, as it was wrapped around the face, it went over the top of the head and came down the nape of the neck. It also is tied underneath the chin. The face cloth was used to transport a body, for example, that would have looked very macabre indeed, or would have, you know, a beloved person who, you know, was terribly beaten and so forth. In Jesus's case, it would have been the beating he received before um, uh, the crucifixion and then from the crown of thorns, etc. So they, in order to, you know, to, to preserve, you know, the, the sentiments of people looking upon the body at being transported, say, from the cross to the tomb. They wrapped the cloth around the head, uh, kept the chin up, and, you know, so that it, the jaw would not uh, flop. And then, of course, they, you know, covered the nose and the mouth so that the pleural edema fluid that would have been coming, you know, would not have disgraced him and so forth. And, of course, what happens on that cloth? What happens when they wrap it, um, and as we shall see, they took the cloth up the face before they laid the body in the shroud. That'll become more important, um, important in just a moment. 
But what happens is a bunch of blood stains from the head, the forehead, the nape of the neck, the face, etc., get embedded on the shroud. But not just blood stains. Pleural edema fluid from the nose and the mouth are also embedded in that face clump. Now, when you do a digital overlay analysis of the blood stains and pleural edema fluid, you do um, a digital overlay analysis of those blood stains and pleural edema fluid with the blood stains and pleural edema fluid on the face of the man on the shroud, you get 120 points of concurrence, right? Uh, uh, 70 on the front side and 50 on the back side. Now, do you know the odds of getting 120 points of congruence in these irregular blood stains and pleural edema fluid stains if those two cloths had not touched the face of that uh, of the same man? I mean, it's just astronomically high odds against this happening. I mean, it, clearly, these two cloths, the face cloth of Oviedo and um, the Shroud of Turin, the face part of the uh, um, of the uh, Shroud of Turin. Both of those cloths had to touch the same face, and that same face was crowned with thorns. That same face was beaten profusely uh, during uh, the course of the crucifixion. That same face has very long thorn uh, wounds that go all the way down to the nape of the neck. Um, very unusual, but it does come uh, from basically uh, what's called a, um, a Jesus uh, thorn, um, uh, you know, from the Middle East. Those thorns are particularly long with some curvature at the end, which is precisely the kind of thorn that was used to make the, uh, the blood imprints from the crowning with thorns. So now you look at these two things. They touch the same face of a man who was crucified um, with a crown of thorns. Well, how many crucifixions are there like that in the whole history of humankind? One and only one that we know of, Jesus Christ. Because as our good first speaker said, he's called the King of the Jews. And in order to mock him, this is precisely what they did. We have no evidence of any other crucifixion in a long history of crucifixions or a man was crucified with a crown of thorns. So it's pretty good chance, not only pretty good, it's, it's an almost irrefutable chance that the two claws touched the same crucified face crucified by a crown of thorns. Now, here's the point. The face cloth of Oviedo has a secure provenance going back to 616 AD, like 600 AD. Well, if they touch the same crucified face, the two claws, that means that the Shroud of Turin has to go back to at least 616 AD, if not before, invalidating by external evidence that the carbon-14 dating, to say the least, and pushing the Shroud back uh, to 614. Now, let's get, I'm going to take up the coins uh, a third. I just want to get to the pollen grains for just a second. Embedded in the shroud are a series of uh, like really hundreds of different kinds of pollen grains. And these pollen grains in the order of proliferation are number one, 
North Jerusalem and Northern Judea, with 14 of the of the uh, pollen grains being indigenous, or 13 of the pollen grains being indigenous and indeed unique to Jerusalem and Northern Judea. As I said before, in order to get that proliferation, so that's almost like 60% of the of the uh, shrouds pollen um, uh, grains, 60% of them are from Jerusalem and Northern Judea. Are you kidding me? A medieval forger went ahead and put in all of these grains from uh, the Middle East, 13 of which are unique to that region, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages? I don't think so. I, I think clearly the shroud has to have been in Jerusalem and northern Judea much of the time in open air. And that's where it gets exposed to these uh, pollen grains, um, the highest proliferation of pollen grains. And secondly, our next set of pollen grains is Edessa, Turkey. Edessa was a very cosmopolitan area, kind of a, a place of a commercial intersection in the Byzantine Empire. So we know sometime around, um, uh, well, after, sometime after 400 AD or so, we know that the shroud goes up to Edessa, Turkey. It has three unique pollen grains from that region, exclusive to that region alone, uh, embedded. And that's the second highest proliferation of pollen grains. There is a second reason for thinking that it went to Edessa too, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But you can um, definitely see uh, that um, uh, this there's a whole series of unique features of the face of the man on the Shroud of Turin. Like you can see a scar, let's got an open box sort of a thing. So it's like a, a square, but with an open top on it that's above Jesus's nose. You can see the raised uh, eyebrow there. You can see the swollen cheeks from being beaten severely around the face, etc. You can see all these things. Now, what's so interesting is the iconography of Jesus prior to uh, prior to Edessa, Turkey, in about 400 to 500 A.D. The iconography of Jesus is distinctly Roman, so a round face rather than an elongated face, very short hair like a Roman would have, not the long hair going down to the shoulders, um, no clean shaven as the Romans were, not with a beard. And, of course, none of these very peculiar um, uh, wounds uh, that are um, in uh, the, the Mendelian. Now, what um, do we think happened? Uh, there was a face of Jesus, a very popular face of Jesus, that was marched around Edessa, Turkey, for about 200 to 300 years. It was called the Mendelian. And the Mendelian... Uh, was, you know, paraded around, you know, processions and various things as the face of Jesus. It would have looked like the third image that I showed you, the very straw coloration, but definitely the bright red bloodstains. I'll talk about the bright red bloodstains later. But the thing to note is that um, they paraded this thing around, and you can see um, that all of the features on the shroud the beard, the long hair, the elongated face, all the unique scars and blood wounds, 
start showing up and changing the iconography of Jesus in the deserts of Turkey around 400, maybe five, 300, 400, 500 uh, AD, but we're not absolutely sure. But we can see the iconography changing right around that time. In fact, it actually got the emperor of uh, Constantinople very interested uh, in the shroud, and he came uh, over. He wanted it for his treasury, and he just basically said, well, I'm going to give you the equivalent of about uh, $10,000 in gold today. I mean, today it'd be uh, worth a million bucks or whatever, but uh, a whole lot of gold, and I'm going to buy this from you, um, he says to the uh, to the king of Edessa. The king of Edessa goes, not interested, and, uh, you know, it's like the godfather. You know, I'm going to make a, you an offer you can't refuse. I'm going to hold the entire city hostage, and I'm going to, um, uh, you know, basically starve you guys out until you sell me the shroud uh, for uh, a price that you think is reasonable. And so we have the, uh, um, you know, the citations about this. What is interesting is it then gets taken to Constantinople. But then... About 800 A.D., one of the crusaders comes zooming into the um, the um, uh, Constantinople, the Hagia Sophia. Uh, also, um, he, uh, I'm sorry, not to Hagia Sophia. It gets transferred to, from Hagia Sophia to St. Mary Blasherney Church. This um, Robert de Clary, uh, the, um, the, the uh, uh, probably a Knights Templar anyway, he's a crusader. Uh, he comes through and he says... I saw this burial shroud of Jesus. The Mandelian unraveled is really the full burial cloth of Jesus. The back part, the front part, it was hanging in the uh, treasury of the cathedral of St. Mary Blasherney, you know, and uh, uh, I saw it myself. And then finally, of course, we know that a fellow named Otan de la Roche right? He is a leader of the Fourth Crusade. He comes into town, the shroud disappears, and then five generations later, winds up in the hands of Jeanne de Vergy. Well, who's Jeanne de Vergy? Well, she's uh, uh, basically the wife of Geoffrey de Charnay, the fellow who first declared in 1350 in Leary, France, I've got the shroud of Jesus. So we have a per the pollen fossils, the pollen grains, they tell the whole story. They validate that story. It had to spend a substantial time in northern Judea and Jerusalem, had to spend a substantial time in Edessa, Turkey, had to spend a, sub a substantial time in Constantinople, Turkey. And the smallest number of pollen grains comes from Leary, France, and Turin, Italy. So we know that's when, of course, when they took it out of the out of the uh, open air. But we know it has a very strong likelihood that the shroud originated in Jerusalem. Now we go to the coins on the man's eyes. Now this is very unusual too, because the coins have four enigmas in them. So they put the coins on the man's eyes in order to hold the eyelids shut just in case during rigor mortis or sometime post-mortem the eyes should come open. So um, uh, the enigmas on the, uh, these are very common coins, Roman leptons, but these coins seem to have, and there are some people who dispute uh, the imaging on the coins, which is why I leave it for the last. But
But if the numismatists and image um, uh, experts that have looked at the coins are correct, and if the photo overlay analysis done by Alan Wunger and his uh, 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 group are correct, then the coins have four enigmas on them that are particular to a special minting of those Roman leptons in about 29 AD by none other than Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. Here's what Alan, uh, Kathleen's going to read again, what Alan uh, Wanger and his group um, discovered. We have done we have done this by means of the polarized image overlay technique that we developed, which enables the highly accurate comparison of two different images and the documentation of the various points of congruence. Using the forensic criteria for matching fingerprints, we feel that there is overwhelming evidence for the identification of the images and the matches with the coins. So anyway, I'm sorry if I'm bouncing back and forth here, but uh, I was just notified. But uh, I tend to I tend to go forward. Sorry, but anyway, the long and the short of it is this: I think it's just indisputable that the shroud um, uh, could have come from seven, you know 700 years ago. Um, there's just no possible way uh, that that could happen. I think it is very, very likely that the shroud originated around 50 AD, plus or minus uh, some margin of error uh, from four different uh, dating tests. Certainly, it had to come before 616 AD by comparison with the face cloth of Oviedo. And uh, the pollen grain certainly suggested had a journey that began with Jerusalem and went through Edessa and Constantinople before it went to Liri, France, and certainly as well. If you uh, think that the imaging uh, is uh, correct and the numismatists are correct and the digital photographic overlay analysis is correct, then those coins on the man's eyes come from the special minting by Pontius Pilate in 29 AD. I think it's a good, very good case for the dating and placement of the shroud. Let's go now to the bloodstains. Very interesting indeed. Okay, I'm going to move uh, a little quickly here. There are 372 bloodstains on the Shroud of Turin. Um, you can tell that the man was tormented hugely uh, by those bloodstains. I'm just going to go, why do we think there's um, that these are bloodstains and not paint or dyes or rubs? Number one, bloodstains don't have AB blood type. Number two, bloodstains don't have human hemoglobin. Number three, paints and rubs don't have human immunoglobulin. Number four, uh, um, uh, they do not have uh, human whole blood. Paints and uh, dyes don't have human whole blood. Number five, uh, paints and dyes do not have uh, enzymes uh, in them um, that uh, uh, point to a polytrauma like uh, creatinine and ferritin uh, synthesized uh, in the blood stains. And, and of course, uh, they do not have a blood uh, uh, plasma serum separation that looks like the body was oriented on a vertical axis like a cross, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all 372 of these blood stains are clearly real human blood of a man with AB blood type uh, with, uh, um, you know, a slight, uh, you can see uh, DNA molecular structures in the blood, but no um, uh, DNA profile is amplifiable by polymerase chain reaction. So you cannot tell what the DNA profile of the person was, but we have a pretty good idea 
that this is real blood. Now, um, uh, what does uh, this tell us when we combine? First of all, there are three really important things to know. Number one, um, the first thing is, is the blood was put on the shroud before the image. You can tell this because when the image is formed, it makes the, the, um, the cloth a little bit friable, crispy almost. And you can detect this crispiness, this, this uh, you know, um, uh, friability of the cloth. You can detect it underneath the blood stains if it's actually there. Well, it's not. And that means that the blood stain had to come first. The blood stains had to come first. Then the image came second. Why does that make um, um, uh, any sense with respect to the Shroud of Turin? Because, of course, the um, um, blood stains would, the minute the body was laid in the tomb, the blood would have immediately been started to be transformed, transferred onto the cloth. However, the image comes, as we shall see, from a very strong um, uh, a pulsation of radiation uh, that, that uh, comes out of the body, which pulsation occurred during the resurrection. So the resurrection happened after uh, the blood stains on the clock. So you can see pretty clearly then um, that uh, how would a medieval forger pull that off? Are you going to put all the, the, the 372 blood stains anatomically perfect on the shot and then uh, uh, put the, you know, the, uh, the image of the man uh, over those blood stains uh, without doing vice versa? I mean, be almost impossible. And certainly for a person who does not have the anatomical knowledge we do today, uh, you can pretty much see, uh, you know, that this is a totally impossible. Medieval forger hypothesis is now getting ruled out pretty clearly. Let's see what that combination of this, the image of the man and the um, bloodstains tell us about how this man was crucified and tortured. Uh, oh, by the way, I just want to give you just a quick uh, thought about the enzyme a mixture, the, the ferritin and creatinine um, mixture uh, in the blood. And this comes from a very good study, the PLOS One study uh, that Kathleen's going to read for just a minute. This is not a situation typical of the blood serum of a healthy human organism. High levels of creatinine in the blood are observed in the case of strong trauma. There is a wide recent literature reporting on interaction between creatinine and ferritin in fatal accident or as a consequence of the rhabdomyolysis due to torture. This result cannot be impressed on the Turin shroud by using ancient dye pigments as they have bigger sizes and tend to aggregate and it is highly unlikely that the eventual ancient artist would have painted a fate by using the hematic serum of someone after a heavy polytrauma. In other words, case rested, uh, that's not only real blood, but it's the real blood of a tortured person, severely tortured person, and the evidence of the torture is in every one of those 372 bloodstains. Now let's get to the actual, um, you know, what's going on with the man on the, on the um, in the shroud. Number one, the man on the shroud, as I said, is crucified um, with a crown of thorns. Uh, this uh, is called um, the Middle Eastern or Judean uh, Christ thorn, and that uh, um, Judean Christ thorn has the particular hook and the um, uh, very uh, kind of scraggly uh, um, indent in, 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 indentings in the in the skin 
uh, across the top of the scalp uh, that is caused precisely by this kind of thorn. Um, it probably, uh, the thorn head is woven across the top. The Romans, of course, uh, uh, did this because it would make for extra pain of the person who was claiming to be king of the Jews. So as I said before, um, uh, there's a weaving across the top with the same kind of thorn, but it's not just a circlet going around the head. How would a medieval forger have even known that this was a Roman custom, not having seen, uh, you know, um, uh, a crown like that on any other crucified? Well, there wasn't a crown on any other crucified vision, or not having ever seen it himself in any picture or image. Uh, number two, uh, the man on the shroud is pierced with a lance. It goes between the fifth and the sixth rib, going up kind of at a 30 degree angle into the thoracic cavity and nicking, going into the pericardial sac and nicking the heart on the way up. And then as it does so, it penetrates the pleural cavity and then pleural fluid, which is built up in the pleural cavity because the man is trying to gasp for breath, right? He's constantly gasping for breath as he's trying to um, uh, push himself up on the cross. All this pleural fluid is gathered in the pleural sac. And then as the soldier jerks this elliptical head out of the uh, body, so it goes up doing that fifth and sixth rib. Uh, by the way, that, that wound is an elliptical wound, exactly like the kind of wound that uh, the kind of spearhead used by the Roman legionaries, say, in a place like Jerusalem. So the guy goes in, goes right up, uh, uh, nicks the heart, nicks the pleural cavity, yanks it out, and out comes, guess what? Blood and water. Or he thinks it's water, but it's actually pleural fluid. What do you see on the shroud itself? Surrounding that spear wound is blood and pleural fluid. That's a, remember John's gospel, right? And remember the, 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 um, the beloved disciples saying, and uh, he says, uh, I'm telling you, outflow blood and water. And of course, he knows everybody's going to think that's not real. That's not real. But he says, I'm, this is the wit I am the witness. I'm telling you the truth. And I know that my witness value is true. So he's kind of insisting that this is what he really saw. Um, you know, coming out of the body. And that's exactly what the shroud shows came out. I mean, completely unique to Jesus. Um, and, and how would a medieval forger know how to, you know, substitute pleural fluid uh, for water and, and put it at the site of the wound? I mean, come on. All right, let's go to the third thing, which is very interesting. And that's uh, the Roman flagrum. The flagrum has three strands on it, very different from a medieval whip which has a single strand. This has three very long strands, and at the end of each of the strands is a like a, sh a little dumbbell uh, pellet at the end of each strand. So what happens, there is a soldier on his left and a soldier on his right, and they're whipping him alternatively. So you can see the strokes coming from the left and then the right, etc. Now what happens is as the man is being whipped, those dumbbells, right, are going around his side, and they're digging into his side. And as the soldier pulls it away, you can see it's tearing the flesh off the man. This is exactly what we see uh, portrayed in the shroud. 
that he is literally his flesh is being shredded and is going from the top of the shoulders all the way down to the base of the calves and the ankles where they're getting him all down the line. And so you can see that the man is going to lose a huge amount of blood. It's definitely a Roman flagrum. And of course, we know no medieval forger ever saw a Roman flagrum. Today, we know about them because we see them at Pompeii uh, and, and Herculaneum Hercule, um, and, and, and so forth. But uh, at the time, uh, they were not known. So the, the uh, uh, medieval fortune. So the idea would be this man is bleeding profusely. Why did Jesus die after only three hours? Uh, pretty clearly, loss of blood. And this whipping makes sense in Jesus's crucifixion because why? Pilate doesn't want to uh, convict him of a capital offense and kill him. He's under pressure from the chief priest to do this. And so he wants to take Jesus in and whip him so much that he comes out totally pathetic, right? A miserable uh, a person. And you see echo, right? You know, ecce homo. Look at the man, right? And uh, I punished him enough. You can let him off the capital offense. And of course, we know it doesn't work. They say, no, give us Barabbas. Uh, crucify this one. So um, the idea then is uh, that explains Jesus' whipping. It also explains why he would have died in three hours. Most of the time, uh, a crucified person could last not only a whole day, but well into a second or third day. And for the Romans, it, that's what they like. More torture, the better. But of course, in this case, they had already, uh, Jesus had already lost so much blood, it couldn't happen. Let's take a look at the next big sign, and that is this big lump on the man's right shoulder. So the man probably was carrying a, a very heavy crossbeam. In this case, we would say that it's the crossbeam of, of uh, the cross on which he was going to be crucified. But of course, you can't tell that from the picture, but you know he was carrying something heavy. We also can see from the scars on the man's knees that Apparently, while he was carrying this very heavy load on his right shoulder, you can see he falls. It scrapes his knee, right? He lurches forward. He falls and to his knees, um, uh, marked by the scrapes. Then the, uh, let's say the crossbeam flies up in the air and bam, just hits him right on the right part of the shoulder. When it does, what happens is you can see from the slope of the shoulder, a 10 to 11 degree slope on the right shoulder there, his shoulder got dislocated. And when his shoulder got dislocated, his neck, I mean, his head basically wrenched to the left. And when the head wrenched to the left, what wound up happening was the, his right eye got pulled into its orbit, which you can see quite clearly, uh, you know, from the... Um, uh, indentation on the right side of the shroud, and then his right side would have become paralyzed. Now, why is this relevant? Because in the case of Jesus, we notice that Simon the Cyrenian is, uh, is uh, basically, uh, you know, forced into service to help carry the crossbeam. Uh, was it because, uh, of course, Jesus had lost a lot of blood and was weak, and that's probably why he fell. 
but he couldn't get up and continue to carry that crossbeam. His shoulder was dislocated, and his right side, um, the upper right side, would have been paralyzed. This explains Simon the Cyrene. I mean, the Romans wouldn't have done anything out of mercy. You can be sure of that. The more torture, the better. Because why get somebody to help uh, carry the beam? Because Jesus could not do This man could not do it in the case. Jesus could not do it. Let's get to the next thing. There are nail prints in the man's hand. And you can see from, uh, you can only see the exit wound, by the way, because his hands are, you know, stretched out in front of him on the shroud, and you can only see the exit wound. But uh, Frederick Zugaby, um, uh, he's, you know, Columbia University, very famous pathologist uh, uh, in New York City there. He thinks that what happened was that the nail print went through the lower part of the palm. And there's a thing called the, the thenar uh, furrow, which is like a, it's this little curvature right here. So you can see, he thinks that at the lower part of the palm, the, um, the uh, a nail is inserted at a 15 to 20 degree angle. And what happens is it goes right through this exit wound that you can see on the shroud, right? You can see it comes through the exit wound right here in the wrist. It didn't go straight through the wrist. It goes through the palm at the angle that puts that in the thinner furrow, which, of course, explains why the, the hands of the man are distended. Uh, the hands of the man in the shroud are, uh, fingers, excuse me, are distended in the shroud because the nails, um, you know, uh, literally went through that thinner furrow. And then it goes through this big complex of uh, nerves that are right here in this little D. You can feel it in your wrist, at the backside of your wrist. And that's what attaches to the cross. But as it goes through these nerves, this man is utterly tormented. He is tormented every time he has to breathe. The shocking action would have been overwhelmingly painful to the point where, you know, he, the only reason he would ever do it is to just breathe. So the idea then is uh, we can see the same uh, nail prints in the feet, it's hard to tell whether both feet were nailed or the feet were put over each other and then nailed. The point is, though, definitely they were nailed and they did the same kind of tactic going through the front part of the foot and then uh, putting it at about a 15 degree angle and then nailing the uh, base of the foot to the actual uh, cross itself. So we get a very good idea of the tortures on the man of the shroud. The two things to take note of is, of is, first, this seems an awful lot like the crucifixion of Jesus. Indeed, when you look at the, the number of whippings that is atypical for any crucifixion, if you don't want to put a guy out of his misery, number two, you look at that spear wound with the plural, plural uh, fluid and the um, and the um, blood coming out of that elliptical wound between the fifth and sixth ribs, and you look at that crown of thorns, probably with thorns, uh, a crown woven with thorns called the Christ thorn um, from that region, you can pretty much see this seems like Jesus, and you can see uh, in this Lenten season, we go into Holy Week, you can see what our Lord went through in his crucifixion, it's just anatomically 
writ large. There's several very good books on this, uh, and I can I'll talk about some free resources on the Maja Center site you can get. But okay, I'm going to have to do the image uh, somewhat uh, uh, before 6:15 here. So uh, uh, 6:15 uh, Pacific time. So the um, the quick thing I want to um, you to see here is that the image has to be produced by radiation. And why is that? There's four principal reasons. First, the image of the man, as I said, it's a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative uh, image uh, on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. Where is the image on the cloth? It's really emblazoned on the uppermost surface of the fibrils of the cloth. In other words, the image, whatever produced the image, does not penetrate into the medulla of the fiber, the middle of the fibers, let alone the middle of the claw. It's sitting right on the surface and the uppermost of fibrils on the surface, as a matter of fact. So that's the first unusual feature. Now, could um, liquids, rubs, or dyes, or scorching do something like that? Absolutely not, because if you put any liquid, any liquid at all, I don't care if it's even a rub, what's it going to do immediately? The chemicals um, in the rub or the dye or the paint or whatever, those chemicals are going to go into the middle of the fibers. They're going to go into the middle of the cloth, and then they're going to spangle. They're going to spread out into adjacent fibers on the cloth. So you know right away that didn't happen on the shroud. There's no blurriness. There's no spreading of, you know, a substance into adjacent fibers. This thing is like super precise, as you can see. It's as precise as a photographic image. And so the first thing to notice then, and, and of course it never goes into the middle of the fibers or the middle of the cloth. So that's the first thing. No dyes, no rubs, no paints. How about vapors coming off the body? Same thing. Vapors, test after test after test, show that if, you know, right, that the, the theory is that the body is warm and it will cause some of the aloes that were used to anoint the body, uh, that it will cause them, to, the vapors, to sink up into um, the cloth. What happens immediately as the vapors go into the cloth goes and penetrates the medulla of the fiber, penetrates the middle of the cloth. Enough said. Um, this, there's just no way that it's going to be a vapors either. Scorching, scorching shows up easily through a fluorescing test. And of course, there is no fluorescing, um, you know, around, um, the, this, uh, around the images of the body, which we'll talk about, uh, momentarily, uh, in a way that would, um, be expected. So all of these things, scorching is excluded. Um, um, uh, dyes, rubs, paints, vapors, etc., are excluded. Well, what what do we think is left over? What we think is left over is light or radiation. Now, light or radiation that could do it. But why? Number one, radiation could produce a very precise image, and it could produce it would be right where would the radiation have its effect right where the cloth is friable, which we'll talk about in a moment, right at the very surface of the fiber. So that's the first thing to notice is radiation looks good from that angle. The second angle 
is that radiation, when you think about it, radiation um, can um, give you what's called uh, um, you know, three-dimensional um, uh, analysis. In other words, you can get um, a, you know, your action at a distance. So, for example, yes, the shroud touched the body in many places, but like up by the nose or you know, um, nearby the hands or the hands are sitting on top of the body, all of a sudden you can see that the shroud didn't make any contact there, yet the image is there and the image right shows the exact distance, right, inversely proportional to the distance of the body from the cloth. So you can see pretty clearly uh, then that um, this thing is acting just like light, just like oh, what's the hallmark of radiation? What's the key sign of radiation? Action at a distance. So it doesn't matter whether the cloth touches the body or not. The image comes out on the cloth. And the image comes out weaker because the cloth is further away from the body, which is producing the radiation that's giving rise to the image. All of our clues, and by the way, there are 40 clues that point to radiation. All of them are explained only by radiation and no other possible sort. So we have two big, huge theories that of radiation that will explain a perfect three-dimensional photographic image on this non-photographically sensitive clock. But before I get to the, so, the two explanations, it is important to see one other thing. That body of the man in the shroud will have to become, well, like spiritual. In physics, we would say it would have to become mechanically transparent. The reason is, is because there has to be some way for either the cloth to penetrate or for um, the body to penetrate the cloth, but it has to penetrate into the inside of the man, because otherwise you're not going to get any precise images of the backbone or the bones in the hand or any of the other data that comes from the inside of the body, you'll never get those images unless that cloth penetrates at least three sixteenths of an inch and probably more. So somehow that body's got to become spiritual or mechanically transparent to get that inner stuff. And was the radiation coming out from the inside of the uh, mechanically transparent body? Yes, it was, because... The backbone, right, relative to the flesh surrounding the backbone, is marked out very precisely. You can tell by digital analyzer. You can see that that depth uh, is properly proportionately recorded on the uh, cloth. So we know the exact distance between the backbone and the flesh surrounding the backbone, etc., between the flesh on the fingers and the bones inside the fingers, etc. So we know that this cloth actually penetrated the body. Okay, now, what are the two big explanations, that uh, radiation explanations that have come out? The first one was the first one developed by a very bright physicist by the name of Dr. John Jackson. Again, another Los Alamos guy. Um, and uh, he's, uh, of course, a physicist um, and particle physics expert. But uh, John Jackson, in conjunction 
um, with um, uh, Dr. Paolo Di Lasaro and his team at the National Labs in Italy. Uh, these guys actually uh, said, look, it is possible to produce that very straw-like color radiation on the uppermost fibrils, a surface of the fibrils of the cloth, in precise and non-penetrating ways with a three-dimensional photographic negative image effect. This could happen with what's called vacuum, a well, columnated vacuum ultraviolet radiation. That means it's coming, coming straight out, and the cloth has to be flat, going straight down, and not just straight down, but the bottom part of the cloth has to be going straight up into the body. So if that happened, then you could see, um, uh, you know, that the um, uh, this radiation, uh, the culminated um, ultraviolet radiation, it actually could produce a, a three-dimensional photographic negative image very precisely, just like is on the Shroud of Turin. Now, um, what's interesting is it would take a very short, it'd have to be a very, 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 very short pulsation, like one forty billionth of a second worth, and it would have to happen um, at a huge wattage, like six to eight billion with a B, billion watts for one forty billionth of a second. It's the only way that this um, could actually occur. If it was a little bit longer, Honestly, the whole cloth would have been completely fried. I mean, you wouldn't even have carbon remnants left. Uh, with, I mean, that's a half a million searchlights worth of light energy coming out of this body for 140 billionth of a second. But Paolo de la Saro, in 2010, he did confirm it with ARF eczema lasers in the lab. And here's um, Kathleen will read uh, what he says about it. The ultraviolet light necessary to form the image exceeds the maximum power released by all ultraviolet light sources available today. It would require pulses having durations shorter than one forty billionth of a second and intensities on the order of several, several billion watts. Several billion watts. So there you can see um, very clearly um, the uh, significance of this. Dead bodies generally don't emit a half a million searchlights worth of light energy for one forty billionth of a second and turn mechanically transparent so that the inside of the body can also be uh, photographed as well. So what does that mean? Well, if that was the explanation, it's a miracle. I mean, that's all you can say. This is one of the most highly unusual uh, factoids we have emblazoned uh, and, and a religious uh, artifact, I mean, and a historical artifact. I mean, it is a miracle uh, emblazoned on the cloth. All right, there's a second. Now, this particular one out of the 45 enigmas we have of, on the Shroud of Turin, about 20 of the enigmas are explained by the columnated ultraviolet radiation hypothesis. But 20 out of 45 enigmas, that means you've got 25 that are not explained. So well, what another explanation was developed by three other uh, physicists in three different countries in independent tests. The first one was Dr. Kitty Little. She's over at Harwell 
um, uh, uh, nuclear labs in um, London, outside of London. And then also we have um, uh, Jean-Baptiste Renaud. Uh, he's obviously uh, in France. He's a, a well-known physicist there and tested the hypotheses in France. And also Dr. Arthur um, Lind, uh, who is here in the United States. These three physicists have confirmed that the particle radiation hypothesis, that's the second big theoretical explanation, the particle radiation hypothesis not only explains the image, it explains all 45 enigmas on the shroud. Bizarre as it may seem, that's what it says. Now, there's a very good book by a fellow named Mark Antonacci. Mark Antonacci, and it's um, he's got several articles on this, but also a book called Test the Shroud, on the atomic and uh, subatomic and molecular level. And you can just get that if you're really interested in the physics. Let's just go through the major enigmas that are explained. First, all of the imaging enigmas are explained by particle radiation. What is the particle radiation hypothesis? It is simply this, that at a certain point, that body simultaneously undergoes what's called a low-temperature nuclear reaction. Why? Because uh, basically we'll just call it a nuclear disintegration. Every stable atomic nuclei, uh, nucleus in that body, uh, that would be, I think it is uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 quintillion um, uh, stable atomic nuclei, simultaneously undergo nuclear disintegration, causing a um, low-temperature nuclear reaction to occur. The low-temperature nuclear reaction would have given rise to two major showers of uh, particles, right? So as this is happening, all of a sudden, all of these stable atomic nuclei are going to do what? They're going to break up into their particle constituents. So you're going to get one shower of particles that are positive, what's called heavy charged particles. Those are like protons, deuterons, alpha particles. And these uh, particles that are zooming out of, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, stable atomic nuclei, they have charges, right? Positive charges. And what's happening? They're, those charges are interacting with the charges in the particles of the shroud cloth. So when it gets to the uppermost surface of the fibrils of the cloth, the particles stop. And when, in other words, they don't go through the cloth. They stop right there at this very surface of the cloth. By the way, this has been tested in all three laboratories and been found to actually occur. Stops at the uppermost um, surface of the fibrils and what happens in addition to that, they actually make that material friable, turns it into a little bit of crispiness. It decomposes it a little bit. So, and it decomposes it. Uh, you know, the, the the closer the body is, the image, the the radiation source is, the darker will be the um, the image created by um, uh, the particle emission. And the further away it is, the lighter uh, the image will be. So you can see then 
that you're going to get this perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image from the positive, the heavy charged particles like protons, deuterons, alpha particles. Then you have a shower of other particles that are not heavy or they're not charged. So an electron is very light, but it's charged. Or a gamma ray is uh, basically a, a, a ray, really more than it is a, uh, it's like a pre-photon constituent. And then, of course, you have um, like neutrons, and neutrons are heavy, but they're not charged. So what do those particles in the gamma rays do? They go right through the cloth. And when they go right through the cloth, they explain a whole host of enigmas besides the imaging enigma. For example, uh, it, um, you can see as they go through the cloth, the, the Shroud of Turin is a very uh, solvent-resistant, age-resistant cloth. It is exceedingly strong for anything uh, that was produced, uh, you know, in, let's say in the uh, um, first century A.D. So we can pretty much be sure that there were no, uh, you know, the cloth was not woven in some special way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's, this cloth is very strong. And the reason is because when the neutron uh, flux, the neutron shower is going through the cloth, it's breaking all the carbonyl, the weak carbonyl chains in the, um, the, the linen, right? The cellulose that constitutes the linen, it's breaking those um, uh, weak carbonyl chains and it's linking up with crystalline carbonyl chains that are much stronger than the linear ones of the cellulose. And that makes the, the, the shroud cloth very strong, very resistant to, um, uh, to solvents, very resistant to age, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just one thing. Have you ever wondered for a, a moment, hey, why did it, how come all those blood stains are bright red? We know that blood, you know, after a certain amount of time, right, maybe five years, you know, the blood's going to turn um, brown, and then from brown to black, it's not going to remain red. Why in the world are the blood stains on the shroud bright red? Well, if you take neutron, uh, a bunch of neutrons, and you irradiate the blood with those neutrons that are passing through the blood, Remember, it's just going right through, right? Uh, you irradiate them with neutrons, and then you put them out in ultraviolet light. For example, when you put the shroud on exhibition and the sunlight is there, and of course the sunlight hits those um, irradiated, uh, neutron-irradiated bloodstains, it turns them precisely uh, bright red. By the way, the bright red content is not due to bilirubin or anything like that. That has long been chemically disproven, but I don't have time to explain. Another real enigma about the shroud, of course, too, is that the, um, uh, the, the, when the cloth is, let's suppose we have a medieval forger. And let's suppose that the medieval forger crucified a man exactly like Jesus, which, of course, he couldn't have done because he didn't even know the details about it. But let's suppose he did. And let's suppose he put the man inside the cloth. And then he waits a day and a half, and then um, he tries to pull the cloth off. What will happen? Uh, by the way, he, he couldn't have produced the radiation because that's a miracle, as we will see in just a moment. But the point, of course, is how if he pulled that cloth up or used any mechanical means of pulling that cloth up, what would have happened? 
it would have fragmented, segmented, smeared, and did a lot of other things to wreck those bloodstains, which are precisely not wrecked. They're not smeared and fragmented and segmented, et cetera, et cetera. How did he do it? I mean, how did he keep almost 372 bloodstains intact without the smearing and the segmenting, et cetera? Very bizarre. So, of course, we've got an explanation in the particle radiation hypothesis. And by the way, this also explains the mechanical transparency of the body. When all those particles are coming off the body, as the body is undergoing the, you know, quintillions of, of uh, you know, of the stable atomic nuclei disappearing, right? As you can see, um, what's happening is the body is literally disappearing. But as it's disappearing, the charges from inside the body are pouring out of it. From the bones, let's say, inside the body are pouring out onto the cloth. And as they're pouring out, they can go right between the other particles. Remember, those particles are no longer intact. They're disintegrating too. So the particles coming off the surface of the body come first, and they're the darkest. The next set of particles come from inside the body and pass through the surface of the body, which is disappearing because it takes them just a fraction of a second longer to get over there. The, the surface particles are already gone, pass right through the surface of the body, and that gives you the perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image. You want to know some, uh, something else that's really interesting, too, um, that um, uh, when that's happening is, um, uh, of course, the body disappears. That's the first thing. And, of course, all the blood that was already integrated into the blot, ah, that blot, blood is intact because the body disappeared right from under, right out from under. So that's the, the, the that solves that mystery. But we got another mystery. Have you ever, another thing we notice is that the dorsal part of the cloth and the frontal part of the cloth have the same intense radiation intensity. Now you'd expect that because the body's weight is on top of the dorsal part of the cloth, you'd expect that to be a, a better image, a clearer image, a darker image, right? There's weight on top of it, brings the body closer, et cetera, et cetera. But no, they're of equal intensity including the inside of the body, like the backbone and so forth. How in the world did that happen? Here's how. In a nuclear reaction where you have, for example, all these stable atomic uh, nuclei that are um, uh, basically uh, disappearing, uh, that are disintegrating, what happens is it creates a vacuum. And the frontal and dorsal vacuums that are created are of equal intensity. Thus, and the, the cloth will remain flat because the vacuum produced by the body will pull the cloth down flat and pull the up backside of the cloth up flat. And so now you get an explanation, not only for the flatness of the cloth, but the equal intensity. The vacuum that's produced by the nuclear, uh, the low temperature nuclear reaction produces the vacuum, which sucks up the both parts of the cloth at equal intensity. Now, if that's the case, that explains another, uh, you know, one of the enigmas on the shroud. And it just keeps going on and on and on and on. So in other words, we can explain all 45 enigmas on that cloth. I just want to say one thing in particular. 
If this is the explanation for, and by the way, it also explains how images from the coins and the flowers that are evident, right? You can see the pictures of flowers and the, and the coins, at least a lump from the coins. Probably you can see the images that I talked about earlier on the clock. But that would explain it too, because, right, you get a neutron, uh, or you, I'm sorry, you get a positive uh, particle. Uh, it hits a, uh, the copper. It sh uh, shoots out probably a neutron uh, or another positive particle. Um, uh, excuse me, um, a, a positively charged particle from the surface of the cloth, right? Conservation of momentum. And of course, the, the coin is uh, images embedded on the cloth. So all of these things explain all of the enigma, all 45 on the cloth. Was it a miracle? Oh, yeah. Do you know the odds of like hundreds of quintillions of stable atomic nuclei disintegrating simultaneously? Uh, is happen anywhere except, you know, in some uh, cosmogenic explosions out in outer space somewhere, right? Low temperature nuclear reactions. I mean, bodies don't do this. There's no physical cause for why a body should do this. I mean, what we're looking at here is a total miracle that's leaving this image in its place. And what's going to happen as this neutron flux and proton deuteron flux, they're zooming up, uh, you know, through the cloth and hitting the surface of the cloth. What's happening at the same time as these particles are like almost instantaneously being um, discharged by the body, little seconds of delay between the inside and the outside going up through the surface, etc. What happens? A big, bright light is going to shine at the apex of the nuclear, the low temperature nuclear reaction, which because it is low temperature is not going to destroy the cloth. But then you're going to get a nice shockwave, a boom, which is going to happen at the same moment. And you look at that big, bright light, boom, particle, uh, particles zooming up into the cloth. What can we say? The body's turning, you know, mechanically transparent and spiritual, leaving an imprint of itself. It's like the perfect miracle, the perfect miracle that God could have easily designed, at, you know, uh, at the time of Jesus's own resurrection, where his physical body is being transmuted into his transphysical and glorified body, leaving behind not only the remnant, the image of what his physical body looked like, but also this big flash of light, this boom, the sound of the resurrection, all at the same time. Would God have done something like this to give us an indication, a sign of the resurrection emblazoned in this shroud? I think so. I think he could have planned it and went, hmm, now what should I do for those skeptical 21st century Americans and Europeans who have so much of a problem believing in me? I know. I'm just going to give them a sign of my light, my presence, my transformation, my power. Just give them a sign emblazoned on the burial cloth of my son. Here you go. And of course, at the end, he simply goes, gotcha. Now, my final remark is this. Can the particle theory of radiation be tested? Yes, it can. And the reason it can be tested is because any low temperature nuclear reaction will have to leave behind cosmogenic isotopes. And those cosmogenic isotopes like chlorine 36 or calcium 41 
They only happen near nuclear sites. There has to be a reaction. In other words, if we come to the cloth in the next in the next scientific uh, uh, testing of the shroud, and we discover a bunch of chlorine thirty six or calcium forty one or other kinds of cosmogenic isotopes in any abundance whatsoever, their natural abundance is almost nil. So if you discover it with any abundance whatsoever, you know that that uh, that there was a nuclear reaction, a uh, low temperature nuclear reaction that happened inside that cloth, leaving behind even that remnant too as if God had thought of everything for a skeptical scientific uh, generation to look at the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the perfect image to reflect on as we enter into holy. Thank you so very, very much. Father Spitzer, wonderful, absolutely fantastic, mind-boggling presentation, the details that you included in these various studies in the the ingenuity that these researchers have come up with to try to, you know, find convincing explanations and then test them accordingly. It's, it's, it's an incredible story uh, that you've put together for us here and, uh, and included all these wonderful details. And, uh, of course, very timely. I, I love that you tie it, of course, as a sign to our generation in particular, because, uh, of course, you know, as, as our Lord said, uh, to the apostles, uh, and when, when Thomas needed his own confirmation, right? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen, and yet we still are given uh, this great gift. Um, what an incredible artifact to have with us. So thank you for walking us through that. I hope all of you uh, who are here with us um, appreciated it and enjoyed it and, and will share it. Uh, maybe if you have a skeptical friend uh, who, who may be touched by some of this evidence, We'll be posting the uh, recording of this event on our website within the next day or two. Father, did you want to, you mentioned there were some places yeah. on the, your yeah, website you that go, you wanted to point people to. That's right. Go to majacenter.com and you can um, see uh, there's an article uh, under free um, uh, resources. You'll see an article called Science and the Shroud of Turin. And Peter, if you want, I can also send you a uh, copy um, of a bit of a chapter from my upcoming book, Science at the Doorstep to Christ, which has all of the footnotes to all the scientific articles I just mentioned. So you can share that with uh, friends, too. You could send that off uh, to help them out. It's really very convincing um, when they see the studies. This has been done. Very carefully, indeed. Fantastic. All right, let's jump into Q&A here. First, with this question from Belinda, I think it's on a lot of people's minds as well tonight. She asks, given all of this astounding evidence, why is the church not proclaiming the shroud to be of Jesus? Well, because the church generally doesn't try to render a judgment on uh, what basically is a scientific uh, um, set of facts. Uh, number one and number two, the shr uh, the church rarely rules on any relic whatsoever. It's just their policy, and there's two good reasons for it. Uh, the first one, of course, uh, you don't ever want to rule on a relic being authentic and have it disproven later on, even if there only is uh, you know a one percent you know point one percent chance of that uh, of some some test being invalidated or something. But the second reason is it just uh, the church has doctrines to rule on and moral codes to rule on. 
uh, relics. Uh, they just simply don't do it. But you do have a preponderance of uh, basically about 40 very fine physicists, um, blood analysts, chemists, physical chemists, uh, you know, and uh, dating experts, uh, et cetera, who, you know, are willing to put their reputations on the line uh, for the shroud. So this uh, really is more the domain of science uh, to show what it can show. Um, and uh, really, it's the, uh, uh, the, the church doesn't really get into these kinds of things for any relic, let, uh, you know. And of course, they don't want to uh, you know, have something be disproved later on. But I don't think that's really going to happen. I think the medieval forger hypothesis, honestly, is preposterous for 27 reasons. I mentioned some of them tonight, but, uh, and I talk about that in my article. Excellent. Thank you. Let's uh, take one on screen here. Mark, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Father, for that uh, comprehensive description. That was super. I want to return. Most of that was over my head. Uh, but going back to the Bible, when the disciples entered the tomb, they found the bandages that covered the head in a separate area. What is the significance of mentioning that? Yeah, I think John actually just wanted to portray what he actually saw. The beloved disciple actually saw. So he saw the face cloth, uh, right, rolled up in a place by itself. So that means that, you know, and this would have been the custom of the day. They would have taken the face cloth off, right, They uh, and then laid the body in the tomb, put the coins on the man's eyes, and then envelop the front part of the body, pull it over his head uh, down below. But I think it's just a description of what he saw. So as he's peering into the tomb, he sees right away the face cloth over there. And then he says, you know, he turns and sees uh, the shroud, actually, the, the burial cloth uh, um, in a, a separate place. And so um, this is exactly... Um, if the what we would expect, you know, that the face cloth of Oviedo there, which I do believe touched all the same, uh, touched the same uh, face and got those blood stains uh, to 120 points of congruence in the pleural edema fluid, et cetera, um, that would have been um, present at both places. I think the community would have revered those two cloths. I don't think, I think they would have died before they ever let an enemy get a hold of those cloths. I think that's why they were so well preserved. I think that the shroud goes to Edessa uh, eventually, um, uh, which also, by the way, the face cloth of Oviedo had a short stint uh, in Edessa, but then they go their separate way. Um, after Edessa, the face cloth of Oviedo goes directly to Oviedo, Spain, where Isidore of Seville testifies that he puts it in to the Cathedral of Oviedo, to the uh, box there in about 700 AD. And then um, the shroud went to Constantinople and then, of course, got uh, stolen uh, by the Crusaders, uh, um, probably Otan de la Roche, the, the, descend, uh, the, uh, uh, the ancestor of uh, Jeanne de Vergy. Um, and um, as they say, the rest is history in the refrance. Thank you. This next question coming is from Richard. He asks if the 2002 cleaning of the shroud, uh, did it damage it or did it remove traces of any pollen or anything like that that would make the kind of research 
done prior to uh, to uh, in 1978, would it would it make it impossible? Oh no, you uh, the cleaning of the shroud was done, I think, very carefully. But we have an exact. I mean, there was sticky tape from the 1978 Stirp investigation put over every millimeter of that clock. I mean, and it's all cataloged, right? You know, we've got fibrils, we've got dirt, we've got pollen grains. We've got a store of it that goes back to 1978. So even if some of that were lost a little bit by that cleaning, honestly, we've got a whole warehouse full of um, these, um, well, not warehouse, but, uh, you know, a, a veritable, um, you know, um, uh, you know, museum worth of these things. Um, and uh, they're very well cataloged. So I don't think we're going to lose too much of anything. Incredible. Thank you. Uh, James, up here on screen, go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, ask your question. Yeah, uh, the question I had is, um, so what's next in the study of the shroud? Are, are, are there more studies or more tests that they're planning? Yeah, the cosmogenic isotopes. That is the biggie. Everybody wants it. All the big physicists who have examined the shroud, this is the number one priority. Because if we find those isotopes, definitely the particle radiation hypothesis has been proven. And if the particle radiation is what produced the image on the shroud, which we think um, very, you know, think it's the only one that explains all 45 enigmas, then clearly there was a miracle. I mean, the idea, you know, of how many quintillion, you know, um, you know, stable atomic nuclei simultaneously disintegrating into a low temperature nuclear reaction. I mean, we're staring right in the face of a completely inexplicable miracle where we have a low temperature nuclear reaction giving off cosmic cosmogenic isotopes inside the actual shroud itself. I mean, I mean, it's as uh, they say in the, the princess bride, it's a miracle. <laughs> so, I mean, there it is. So um, uh, I really do think it's, uh, um, uh, you know, and if it is that kind of a miracle, if that's what really happened, I'm not kidding. We, we literally have the remnants of the resurrection of Jesus, not just his crucifixion and his blood, but a remnant of the resurrection itself, his transformation into a transphysical body, into a spiritual transphysical body. We have it right there emblazoned on the shroud. Is there any timing for that test? Well, um, people are hoping, hoping sooner rather than later, but it's not really just in the hands of the church, though that's part of it. There's also the Savoy family, and the Savoy family uh, in Turin uh, still has uh, custody uh, there. Also, there are many different scientists. Uh, we need to reassemble the team, the old 1978 Stirp team. Many of them have passed away. Many of them are fairly old right now. So we're going to have to bring together some uh, new, younger ones. Uh, Dr. Kitty Little, I'm absolutely certain, will be part uh, of that. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Renaud, uh, probably so too. Uh, I would say that there's going to be, uh, uh, you know, Dr. John Jackson is still alive. Well, he may be part of it. Uh, I'm not sure, but um, I would say that uh, we'd have to reassemble that team, figure out which are the priority things that we want to do. Um, and uh, I'm um, pretty sure that that could be done very effectively. The moment the church, the, the Savoy family, 
and the um, officials in Turin, Italy, give permission for uh, another exhibition uh, of the shroud. So I'm hoping, well, two, three years from now, uh, we should get some really interesting things. By the way, the cosmogenic isotopes would be easy to identify. Thank you. It's cool to see that this, you know this will develop within our own lifetimes. So we can track yeah. and and follow this uh, this artifact and and new findings because you know the studies that you've referenced. You know it's it's contemporary to us. Um, a question coming actually a couple along these lines, and it's related to kind of what you just left off on. Uh, why is it so rare to have public viewings of the shroud? Why has the church not made it more available for devotion or public prayer? I think the basically two big reasons. Um, number one, uh, because uh, um, every time you do have an exhibit, uh, you take it out of its special conditions, and you know some aging and de you know small amounts of decomposition are just going to take place. Even notwithstanding the shroud's extraordinary uh, strength and resistance to age. So that's the first thing I would just call it conservatism. Um, you know, keep this in the best possible conditions you can for as long as you can. Uh, the second reason, of course, is uh, um, I think the uh, uh, security, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to tell you, uh, you know, you look at Our Lady of Guadalupe and you, you never know. Um, you really got to be Johnny on the spot with the security. Although Our Lady, I must admit, when that one terrorist guy kind of put that huge bomb underneath the, the tilma of Our Lady, it, of course, the, the big bronze crucifix that was uh, right next to where the bomb exploded bent back, but the bomb was placed right underneath the, the picture, and nothing happened. It wasn't framed. It wasn't protected. Picture's untouched. <laughs> so maybe maybe we don't even have to worry about bombs and security, but, uh, you know, Prudence is the better part of valor. Of course, of course. Excellent. Um, thank you. Let's take, we're running out of time here, so let's just take one more question uh, on screen. Ines, go ahead, then we'll, we'll go out with yours. Sure. Uh, my question uh, is regarding the comparison, the face recognition studies between the Shroud, the, the Veil of Oviedo, and the Veil of Veronica. Do you have, can you comment on that, or do you have any references about it? I keep on hearing about it, but I haven't been able to find something to read about that. Yeah, the Veil of Veronica, we don't. Uh, if you're talking about Montpellier, um, we don't have really any substantial scientific test. So I have to you know, put that. Uh, only the ones I've been working with are the ones with significant um, scientific tests. Now, of course... The face cloth of Oviedo has had such tests, and um, so has the Shroud of Turin. So between those two, I have several articles mentioned in that um, one that I'm going to send to Peter Tafsak. Um, I will get you, you can look at those articles there. The four main points of congruence, of course, it's the shape of the blood stains as well as the blood type and um, uh, the hemoglobin in the blood stains. Um, like I said, it'd be astronomically high odds against, um, you know, uh, uh, those two uh, sets of blood stains um, happening on both of those cloths uh, widely separated now in space without touching the same face. 
it's just impossible, I, I, I would say. The second thing is the pleural edema fluid. It's, you know, it looks like it's the same, uh, the, the pleural edema fluid from the same um, uh, man. Uh, so that uh, also is a, a similarity and it's coming from the same places on the shroud. Alan Wenger, the guy that did the photo digital uh, um, uh, uh, photographic uh, uh, overlay uh, test of the coins, he also did the photo of uh, the overlay analysis uh, for the bloodstains on the um, uh, face cloth of Oviedo and on the Shroud of Turin. So it's highly accurate that the shapes and points of congruence are absolutely there. Um, so the pleural edema fluid and the bloodstains uh, chemically are also identical. Uh, the third, of course, thing that's uh, uh, very clear, too, is uh, that thorn, um, you know, the Christ thorn uh, from the Middle East, um, that's evidenced on both cloths. Uh, and so you can pretty much also, you know, see that, um, uh, um, you know, that there's something very odd there. And finally, the fourth thing are the pollen grains, that proliferation and of um, pollen grains from Ju Jerusalem and Judea with the unique pollen grains from that area are embedded in both the Shroud of Turin and the face cloth of Oviedo. There's also pollen grains from Edessa in both cloths, but then, as I said, they separated, their journey separated. Um, what I think when the uh, um, Emperor of Constantinople laid siege to um, Edessa to get the cloth, uh, um, uh, basically, they probably got that cloth out of there, um, you know, um, out of uh, Edessa, uh, the face cloth of Oviedo, uh, out of there. And that's where it went on its own separate track, um, seemingly to, um, it seems to have gone through Greece because there are some pollen grains from Greece there. Uh, so um, then from Greece, it goes to Spain. Uh, and as I said, in 700, Isidore of Seville himself places it uh, in the Cathedral of Oviedo in that, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of bronze casket where it remains until today. So... Um, those kinds of things is uh, they definitely parallel, and I can get you some very good articles on these matters uh, that are from a scientific perspective. But uh, the veil of Veronica, um, uh, not so much. You know, the image of uh, Mount Pelier. Excellent, thank you, Father. Yeah, we'll be looking thank for you. that that uh, chapter, and we'll link some resources to your website and everything. And and for those who may have not re uh, read any of Father Spitzer's books, well, he certainly dots his eyes and crosses his t's. There will be plenty of footnotes to various studies and uh, and other works, so you can follow the the citations and have it all in front of you. So, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to providing that. Look for an email tomorrow from the ICC. Uh, once the recording of this is ready to go with those links. Father, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you from all of us. Uh, from We had almost a thousand feeds live with us this evening. A lot of you, of course, I know are joining multiple people from one screen. So we had certainly over a thousand people uh, listening to you this evening and, uh, and will become uh, evangelizers, apostles for this wonderful relic. We'll be watching very carefully, see the developments coming from these new studies. Uh, in the future. So thank you so much for your, your preparation, your research, your time this evening with us. I'll give you a quick uh, going away uh, Holy Week blessing. Excellent. And may the Lord 
who has sacrificed himself completely in love for us to redeem us, to protect us from evil, and to give us the life of his glory so manifest in this shroud. Bless you during this Holy Week season that you may deepen your trust in him and know that he is calling you to the resurrection in light and that he will stay with us until the end of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.